Welcome to a special episode of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with Free Market at Fintech Connect 2022 at the Excel in London. Fintech leaders from the entire Fintech ecosystem are here for two content-packed days to discuss open banking, embedded finance, the future of payments, blockchain, AI, the metaverse, regtech, and lots more. I'm going to be interviewing some of the key speakers and guests here on the free market stand to give you a flavor of the event and to find out more about the topics discussed. I'm joined by Paul Staples, Global Head of Banking as a Service and Embedded Finance Proposition, the HSBC. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Not at all. You've just finished your session about the future of embedded finance. What points did you raise during that session? Well, it was nice to be hit with a little uh, straw poll at the very end there by Jeff when he asked, uh, in 10 years from now, will SMEs be getting their credit from a bank or from somewhere else in order to sort their cash flow? I think it's quite unanimous, actually, on the panel that we all wanted to disagree with each other, but we couldn't find a way to disagree with each other. We all agreed that, actually, SMEs could probably still get their credit from a bank, right? But actually, the application process, the, the approach, the simplicity to it all may actually be in their accounting system because that's where the cash flows are or it could be in their ERP. So, yeah, it was, a, it was quite interesting. And, uh, yeah, as much as we like to disagree, we couldn't find a way to on that one. You couldn't find anything, yeah. no. And I've heard about this, uh, the NetSuite release that mm. you've released into the US. I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about that and what that means? For yeah, you? So, so look, our journey started a couple of years ago when we started to look at the future banking business models that could be out there and as we looked at this the relationship between us and the end consumer the end user of a product actually there's an intermediary player a brand so not only do we have to build a, a kind of an orchestration platform across the top of HSBC's corporate banking business but we've actually done that in a way that enables NetSuite in, as our principal launch partner in the US to actually consume all of those banking products and surface them directly themselves so if you're like a imagine you're a CFO you're there, you're in your ERP system, which is NetSuite, and now you've got to pay an invoice. I've actually got to leave the NetSuite real estate, go into my banking provider, make the payment, get the transaction reference, bring it back into my ERP system, make sure it reconciles three days later, whichever <laughs> payment rail you've used. That's quite a lot of friction. So we decided to reinvent that whole process with NetSuite using our new tech platform. So actually, you now never leave NetSuite. You can have a bank account, payment rails, cards, all that, all directly within NetSuite. So as a CFO, you've made your life is so much easier. It's been a great release. The partnership was announced in, in October 21. The product as a whole, the user journeys, the whole onboarding journey process went fully live in October 22. And the uptake's been uh, quite marvellous. Why do you think the eyes of the world are on this launch in particular? Now, yeah, so the eyes of the world are on us because I've had a number of SaaS companies of many billions in value kind of asking me, Paul, we're keeping an eye on you directly. This probably is one of the largest, if not the largest, implementations of banking as a service contextualized through embedded banking, embedded finance in a B2B environment. We've seen success within B2C. There's no doubt about that. We've seen huge success in B2C around the world, whoever provides the best and embedded finance solution. But B2B, there's a lot more friction, a lot more challenges to overcome. And actually the end user, the business, the CFO or the, the head of treasury, do they really want this? Right? That's a big unknown question. Even though proposition testing that we've done and, and NetSuite's done suggested there was, there's still eyes on you to see whether they actually take it up and start to consume 
the product and service. So actually, yeah, that's why the eyes of the world were on us. I think a few have done different approaches to this through open banking methodologies, through API just adoptions and things like that. But actually now, it's truly contextual within the wheelhouse of NetSuite. Now, I wouldn't dream of telling our listeners how long you've worked in banking as a service, but how have you seen it change over the course of your career? So, uh, it's funny enough, I, I used the, uh, the phrase, what is the history of banking as a service and, and embedded finance, and I actually gave the story that an ATM is the original form of embedded banking, where you had an ATM placed within a grocery store and you've got your cash out to maybe pay for your groceries. That <laughs> is embedded banking, it's just not done with APIs. Yeah. So really in the last kind of five years, we've seen a huge explosion in this. We've seen every imaginable banking component now with the tag as a service on it, cards <laughs> as a service, payments as a service, deposit accounts as a service. Now you're getting into the next level down, credit as a service, onboard. Everything now can be a service. So we've seen banks wanting to own the whole process end to end and actually letting it go and actually providing that orchestration. So you know, the evolution has been from that of pure API ownership to bringing other people's APIs in and using their services because of margin economics maybe and actually then providing that experience out as well. So actually we're seeing a whole host of different approaches here. So banking service 10 years ago was just APIs. Now it's actually contextualizing those APIs and building new user journeys and actually it's almost like a cohabitation if you will. Our brand partners have to sit pari passu with the, the banks and the BAS providers to collectively create a proposition that the end user wants. And it previously was just supplier-buyer relationship. Now you're joined at the hip to make the success work. Yeah. What about specifically B2B banking as a service? How do you see that progressing? So B2B banking service is materially harder, right? And the way to kind of understand this is in B2C, you have an ID card, a passport, a utility bill, and I can do KYC very, very quickly. When you start to look at B2B, and I've got to do KYB on a company, I've got the company chart of accounts, I've got the directors, I've got the shareholders, I may have sub-entities around the world. That's where your whole KYB layer starts to kick in. So that, in its, in its own right, is hard. And that actually why is probably why people have actually left it to now to start to tackle ultimately, right? <laughs> and actually, there are ways around this. It's improving the technologies that we've already seen out there, the tech stacks that we've got available. We can turn more and more of those into service components and, and configure them however we see fit. And I think the future actually is in banking as a service and embedded banking on top of that in the B2B environment. And Jeff Tisson today quoted that is uh, I think 2026 and anticipates seven trillion dollars worth of transaction flow through embedded finance, embedded banking. We've got two trillion today. Where's that other five trillion going to come from? Actually, if you do B2C banking as a service today, that's your two trillion. The other five trillion that Jeff's quoting is probably going to come from B2B. Okay. So yeah, potential monumental shift on the way then. Absolutely, and, and we're only at the start of this journey. Yeah. Right? It's going to come from banks. It's going to come from orchestrators out there that sit across banks and plug multiple banks together and help innovating partners consume banking as a service. There's different players within the environment from pure thoroughbred banks with balance sheet and the robustness of the regulation sitting with them. Then you've got orchestrators that sit alongside them and over top of them, helping others access those banking capabilities. There's a, there's a role for everyone to play, is arguably my conclusion on all of this. And you're going to have different people taking it from an, or uh, an orchestrator and different folks taking it directly from a bank. And we'll see how that plays out. 
An excellent conclusion. Thanks so much for joining me today. Paul Thank Staples. you very much for having me. I'm joined now by Mike Whitehead, Chief Banking and Product Officer at Free Markets. Welcome to the podcast, first of all. Thank you, Graham. Good to be here. You've just spoken on a session about how corporates can navigate the changing risk appetite of banks. Quite a grand title, but what do you see as the main challenges to corporates in 2023? It is a grand title. It's quite a big issue, I think, out in the marketplace. What we're seeing as a provider that really focuses on small and medium-sized enterprises is a lot of our client base and prospective client base are finding it difficult to access some of the basic banking services. Not a new trend. I think it's something that has been out there for probably the best part of a decade, in all honesty, but we've seen that trend increase. And I think one of the reasons is the larger providers of payment services and cash management services, the big global banks, it's an expensive product for them to service and to be able to provide to those small clients. All well and good if you're providing that service to a major corporate, a major financial institution. But if you're providing that service to an organization which is quite small, which has relatively small and relatively basic transactional needs, probably not a lot of profitability for one of the major banks in that particular market. And that's where an organization such as Free Market steps in because that's exactly the bread and butter of our business. That's the client base that we service. Yeah, sure. I mean, the payments industry has changed so much in the last three years, hasn't it? How has Free Market adapted to that? Yeah, we're in a fortunate position as a fintech that we've been able to build, and I would focus on this as, as a real fundamental, we've been able to build a technology platform that leverages cloud-based technology, it's very API driven. And as a result of that, we've been able to put in place a platform that is meeting client requirements. And client requirements are evolving pretty rapidly. This, in a small and medium-sized enterprise, their requirements are getting more sophisticated, they're becoming more demanding of their providers. And to be able to satisfy that, you really need to be quick to market, you need to be able to flex to client requirements. And in many instances, that can be challenging if you have a legacy technology platform. So that trend in the marketplace for small clients to struggle to get provision, to find that their requirements become more and more sophisticated by the month, they become more demanding by the month, really does lend itself to a fintech provider in being able to satisfy that trend that we see changing in the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, you talk about technology. How far can this technology go? What are your thoughts on the future of this technology? Yeah, good question. I, I mean, I think there's always an advantage when you are leveraging new technology. We see that the cost of technology is coming down. Not necessarily the cost of technology individuals, but certainly the cost of the platform itself is absolutely coming down. And there are so many new products, so many new capabilities out there. And I think what's interesting from, from a FinTech perspective is we're very comfortable in partnering with other FinTechs in terms of building a platform which flexes to those client requirements. So the event that we're at at the moment, there are so many technology providers, all of whom have got a market leading capability, a market leading product. And we are very interested at Free Market in taking those products and plugging them into our platform in terms of just broadening and widening that opportunity for the client base to access those products. So lots of new ideas out there, lots of new capabilities. The challenge for us is to be able to move at speed and to be able to integrate those 
into the platform. And you're excited about 2023 and the possibilities ahead? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, that we face a challenging economic environment. I think we're all very conscious of that. I think we've got a an interest rate environment which is unusual for most people. That's going to have some interesting implications in terms of those people that are leveraging debt financing. That's going to be a challenge for, for those sort of organizations. We're fortunate in terms of free market, we're well capitalized, we're profitable. So we're confident in terms of our own stability in what will be an economically volatile environment. But we're conscious that some of our clients are going to face some challenges. And I think that challenge is really going to manifest itself in customers being very focused on cost. And anything that we can do to help customers with the cost of their cross-border payment activity, the cost of their foreign exchange activity, is just going to help them. And clients are looking for savings wherever they can find them. And the challenge to organizations such as ourselves is to help with that process. How do we drive down the banking costs of our clients? How do we drive down margins? How do we drive down transaction pricing? Challenging but exciting times. Mike Whitehead, thank you for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Joining me now is Lisa Fraser, Chief Operating Officer at Judo Bank. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Graham. Great to be here. Yeah, lovely to see you. Could you start by giving us an overview of Judo Bank and what market you cater for? Sure. So Judo Bank came into existence in 2016. A group of experienced bankers who were passionate about the small, medium enterprise economy, so SMEs, took on the task to help establish the challenger bank movement in Australia. Today we are a specialised SME lender, so we provide capital to SME customers in Australia. We have been profitable for two years and we IPO'd last year. Today our asset book is approaching $7 billion. We've had pretty good growth and uh, great margins and a high quality portfolio of loans. Yeah, and as you mentioned, that is a dramatic rise, isn't it, from setting up the business to IPO and then ultimately to profitability. How have you done that in such a short space of time? Well, I definitely say it was hard. <laughs> it's not my first startup. And so what I would say is there's a lot that goes into it. I think there are really four things that have really made a difference for Judo. First is pick where you play, right? So for the SME customer base, they essentially are unloved and underserved by the major banks. And as a result, you know, up to 40% of them can't get capital when they need it. Two-thirds of them will say they don't like their relationship with their existing bank. And if you ask them, how would you rate your bank on trust? It's a two out of 10. So not that great. So pick where you play is like an economic opportunity and a sizable problem that you can solve as a startup. The second thing would be test the customer value proposition. So it's very important to iterate that from very early on and to understand what really resonates with customers and what are they willing to pay. The third thing that Judo did, which is quite different from the startups I've been part of in San Francisco, is they really pushed for the business model achievement early. And just to give you a sense of why that's important, in Australia, the regulator had not issued a banking license for decades. And in 2019, they issued four. We were one of those four. And all the other three no longer exist. They've handed their licenses back. So it's really important to understand the business model. And then lastly, it really is about you know, how you manage your capital and how far you invest ahead of or alongside the business model. So I think we've all been guilty, me included, of building too much tech. 
but it's really important to get the balance right between the impact you're having from what your product and technology you built and put into market. Now your session here at FinTech Connect is about the power of technology and people. Can you explain how those things fit into your kind of business model? Yes, I'm excited for the session. I am going to be talking about bringing people and technology together from startup to scale up, which is the judo story. And what I'll be focusing on really is a little bit about why we exist. As a result of digitization and innovation in financial services, the unintended consequence has been we've lost relationships between banks and customers. So if you think about it, the ATM existed back in the 1960s, and it automated what the teller used to do in the branch, and that's where people used to go. Not that many of us remember that at all. But with between the ATM and phone banking, internet banking, and mobile app banking, we've gained 24-7 access, convenience in financial services, but we've lost relationships. And for the SME customer, it's really important to have a people relationship, because they're all different. We like to say the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker aren't the same. <laughs> they have different business models and different needs at different times. And so I'll be talking about the people part, which is really relationship-led banking, character-based lending, relationship banking, and really high-tech, high-touch, which is different from today's status quo you know, in the banking world, which is pretty much minimal relationship, low, slow-tech, and computer-based lending. And so that's what we're talking about, how we've gone ahead and built out our bank. Yeah, it should be an excellent session. And as you've mentioned, you've come all the way from Australia. Do you think your counterparts in Europe, FinTech companies in Europe, could learn anything from the way that Judo has gone about things? Oh, I, well, I certainly hope so. I think uh, sharing our individual stories as part of the companies that are changing and transforming financial services is a great thing. We've certainly got our own scars and we have a lot more to get done, but we've had some real wins. I mean, I think it's really important for us to share how we went about that. But at the same time, I'm here to actually learn from what's been happening here in Europe and UK. I mean, it's such a hub of fintech activity. And, you know, and I also like to hope that, you know, there are more women getting inspired to be part of fintech and technology and, and financial services. So hopefully, you know, we can kind of do a share share and win-win uh, inspire some more people. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we've spoken about your dramatic rise from setting up the business to profitability. What does the future hold for Judo Bank and your customers? Yes. Well, a lot more to do. So, I mean, I think one of the key messages is just because you're IPO, the job's not done. So there's a lot to do in scaling the company. So for us, we really are focusing on what we call the unit economics uh, to help us understand how we drive scale to be able to serve more customers. I mean, the whole idea of getting to profitability is that you have some sustainability, but the, which means you can actually help more SME customers. We are going into what we would call uncertain economic times, given what's happening across the globe. Australia tends to weather global recessions pretty okay. And so for us to be there for more customers as we scale our bank, you know, we're pretty excited and it looks like bright, sunny days, hopefully. Well, listen, good luck for your session. Good luck for the future with Judo Bank. And Lisa Fraser, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Graeme. <laughs> good to see you. I'm here with Sophie Flynn. 
co-founder of Nucleus 365. Nice to meet you, Sophie. Lovely to meet you, Graham. You spoke at a panel today about how corporates can best navigate the changing risk appetite of banks. What were the main points of that discussion? The main discussion points really are about how fintechs are navigating bank redundancy and how they can support the de-risking of traditional banks, how the customers' expectations changing and how fintechs can maybe step in and add value to their businesses there and become a key part of their business. Another key takeaway was that SMEs to have multi-relationships with banking partners rather than just relying on one because I think especially fintechs now, they're, um, they're offering so much more capabilities, access to different regions. I think that's really important that SMEs are partnering with these fintechs to be able to access different regions. And how does Nucleus 365 fit into all of this? Well, we are a, uh, a payment institution, fintech startup. We've actually got a sister company, Transact 365, which is a PSP. And I co-founded that around five years ago. And we basically found that a lot of our merchants were not only wanting payment methods and payment offerings, but they were also requiring banking because they found it a little bit more difficult to obtain banking relationships with the traditional players. So Nucleus is a startup synergizing both into one user interface. So this would give like the merchant offering to payments into different regions and then obviously the banking in the same ecosystem. Well, let's keep on the subject of payments and talk maybe about international payments, which is quite a complicated sector. What are the main flaws in that sector, do you think, at the moment? The main flaws in the international payments sector, I think, is probably the speed of delivery of payments. Customers are becoming a lot more demanding now. It's expected that payments are instant, whereas they're just not. Unfortunately. (laughs) And I think everybody's felt the pain there one time or another. But yeah, I think that's probably the main flaw, that it's not instant. And especially with technology these days, like the blockchain and all these sort of other technologies that are coming out, it's expected that they are instant, which they're not. That's maybe what banks are looking to try and change. The likes of PayPal have been doing it instant for years. Well, well, let's move on to the banks then. How are they addressing these issues? The main thing is the digital currency. that I think a lot of the banks are looking at that now and thinking, we're going to have to bring out this digital currency. If all the banking systems worldwide adopted the digital currency, essentially it can be moved, funds can be moved a lot quicker via blockchains and all Web3 technologies. And from Nucleus's point of view, what, what are you focusing on for 2023? I think we're focusing on looking at what our clients want and how we can add to our services to be able to support them in the regions that they're like maybe not as supported in. I think we've got to look at that rather than having the market come to us. I think we have to look at the market and adapt to what the market wants. And I think that's probably what we will be looking for in 2023 to see how we can add value to clients, retain clients and obviously obtain new clients. Yeah, I'm sure you'll do it very well. Sophie Flynn, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much. Joining me now is Jason Hurwitz, Head of Strategic Initiatives at Aldermore Bank. Jason, nice to meet you. Hi, Graham. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. You've just spoken on a session around the future of technology and innovation in banking. What was discussed? 
Oh, there's an awful lot. Really good, actually. Um, it's on, on, on there with some guys from Bain, from Lloyd's. And I think a lot of discussion around the kind of technology that exists out there, but also a bit more pragmatism on how the hard job of not selecting you know, the best tech on the market to deliver the kind of propositions you want to deliver, but what's the best way of doing that and how do you go about it? So really interesting. And what are the best ways to go about it? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think there's no, perhaps no, no one way to skin a cat, but unanimously it was discussion on the cloud, on component-based architecture. So how can you select the right pieces that you want, work with partners and, and build an ecosystem that suits your customers you're trying to deliver. So there's the days of building one big system to deliver all of, are long gone and that was unanimously said across the group. So quite interesting. Yeah, sure. So, talking about technology and banking, how much do you think is planning for the future and how much can we actually give tangible benefits to the customers now? Do you know, it's interesting, the last couple of years our dear friend COVID came along and I think what that reminded us as organisations is technology is desperately important. You know, thank God we were in going through a, um, a pandemic where we were all confined to our homes and had the kind of technology to continue working and be, stay connected with internally your organisations but also with our customers. So, you know, if it happened a couple of years before it wouldn't have been quite so straightforward. But, and the big but is, what the pandemic had reminded us again is technology only goes so far on, on meeting customer needs. And yes, if your need is dead simple and your borrowing requirements if you're, if you're looking for, for lending are small and your pockets align with gold anyway, then fine. You probably don't want a, a warm, loving and, and human-based experience. You just want the money you want to get, you want to get on with your day. But for everyone else, when you're going through a, you know, financial challenges, which this, the last couple of years are, are, have certainly done and we're going through some more difficult times coming up now, then it's getting the balance between technology and human expertise that's really important. And that, you know, it's great to be here today to talk about all the kind of great technology that exists in the market, but really it's the interface between technology and, and deploying human expertise that resonates with customers that really that's the tricky bit and that's where the that's where the magic is yeah sure well post-covid how do you go about building those uh, relationships or rebuilding those physical relationships with your customers how do you do that page one on that is being able to continue to, to, to support your customer base through the cycle and to do that you have to be an adequately profitable organization so that you know, you don't run into a little bit of challenge and therefore you've got to shut up shop and, and abandon your customers at a time of most need uh, page one on how to, how to do that is to make sure you're running sustainably as an organization i.e earning enough profit to continue to run the bank continue to be able to lend to your customers in times of need i.e through the cycle often an overlooked but very basic point. Once you've kind of got that and you're sustainably in a good spot to be able to continue to support your customers, then it's about identifying and, and specialising more and understanding your customer base and going, okay, because I think what a lot of customers want, particularly through challenging times, is to deal with someone who understands them. Uh, and technology can help with that, but you've really got to deploy expertise alongside the technology to get that right. Yeah. Well, maybe that kind of segues into your other session. You're very busy today at FinTech yes. Connect because yeah. you're speaking on yet yeah. another session about enhancing yes. customer experience. Yes. So what do you expect to deliver in that session? As I've touched on already there, I think key to it is, you know, a lot of the technology that came online over the last years have accelerated the speed in dealing with customers. So that's great, but it's still often a one-size-fits-all journey. It's a faster one-size-fits-all journey, but it's still one-size-fits-all. So I think where the magic is going forward is to what extent can we specialise and personalise for customers so they deliver a unique experience. I don't mean necessarily because it's not economical to create an individual experience because you can't scale that and you can't run an organisation profitably to be able to continue to serve all your customers through the cycle, but you can identify pockets of customer segments that you can specialise in so you can really sort of deliver value to them in a way that connects with them. In many sectors, including in banking, there's a real need for authenticity. So I think you can really demonstrate to customers that you understand them, you understand their, their segments, you understand the moment in their journey of buying their first house, whatever it is, if you can really empathise with that, then you, I think you're in, you're in good shape. 
Yeah, also keen to know about how Aldermore Bank fits into the kind of traditional banking sector. Yeah. Obviously, you're disrupting this sector. Yeah. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for the traditional banks? Again, it, it plays into what we're talking about there. So we are a, a specialist lender. So we identify areas where we can really add value and really sort of go in and support customer segments. So we're here about backing people and supporting them on fulfilling their sort of hopes and dreams, whether that be consumers wanting to buy their first house or make a buy-to-let investment on a property if they're at that stage in life, or to businesses who are you know, wanting to scale up or invest in their businesses to really to really grow them. We're here to sort of help them do that. So where we are as an organization compared to the large banks, I suppose, is we're perhaps we're a bit a greater ability to, to select customer segments and, and make sure we deliver the most amount of value we can in, in areas of specialism rather than needing or having to be jack of all trades to every customer in every scenario, because that isn't really what we do. We don't have current accounts and no appetite to do so. We're supporting customers where we can add value and we leave other customers to other organizations. Yeah, sure. What does the future look like? Is it just more consolidation of that model or do you have any other plans? I think there's still a lot of room for growth. The large incumbent banks still have a, a, the lion's share of the market and they still tend to be first choice for a lot of organisations. So we've got some work to do to really become not a specialist challenger bank, but actually mainstream. So I think if we can deliver more value within our segments, there's, those segments are very large, they can be very profitable. So I think we, you know, for us, it's about investing in those, in those areas of specialism and really sort of standing out from the crowd and saying we are the right organisation to support individuals uh, at a time where they want to have some borrowing to support whatever it is they're doing. Interesting times. Listen, I know you're a busy man today, so Jason Hurwitz, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks, Graham. Cheers. Joining me now is Conrad Ford, Chief Product Officer at Alica Bank. Welcome, Conrad. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, good to have you on the podcast. Now, your session today was around building a personalised user experience. How did that go and what points were raised? Well, it was a good session, and I think my big focus area was that a lot of incumbent financial institutions think of user experience about building a cool or slick user journey, and I think they've kind of been lulled into a false sense of security by fintech. Actually, I think if the incumbents actually spent time fixing the basics, then they would have much happier customers. And indeed, a lot of customer experience that they build is around working, you know, workarounds for customers that can't actually just get the job done. And the other point is, I think there's a modern framework that fintechs have adopted called Jobs To Be Done, which is about understanding what the customer's really trying to achieve. They're not buying your product of your financial services. You know, nobody buys a mortgage. Yeah, they want to buy a home, and a mortgage is a necessary and painful step to get the home. So thinking about the job to be done and rethinking your customer experience, those were the points I was making. Okay, brilliant. And to move on to open banking, big topic here at Fintech Connect, what, what does the emergence of open banking mean for the traditional banks? Well, I think over the next five, 10 years, it's going to really question the, what I'd call the universal banking model, which is what have we had the dominant type of banks in the Western world, certainly for the last, you know, my lifetime, my parents' lifetime, is there's been these big banks that are all things to all people. So they serve all the way from little consumers all the way to the very biggest corporates and governments. And also they do everything from distribution, which meant for them historically branches, to manufacturing the products, to the raw materials of cash, collecting cash. I think as a result of open banking, we're, we're going to start seeing those models break down a bit because open banking means that somebody else can have the customer relationship and do the distribution. And it means that somebody else can serve one particular segment dramatically better than you as a big bank who tries to be jack of all trades and master of none. So I think what we'll start seeing partly as a result of open banking, but also generally of digitalization, is real question marks over that model that's dominated our lifetimes in banking. You mentioned digital transformation. Why do you think the traditional banks struggle with 
digitization? Well, the problem's actually in the words you just used there. They love their big transformation programs. You know, they have these impressively titled strategic transformation digital program, and they have someone with a suitably important title, program manager. That's not the how, way you do this stuff. And I say this as somebody who comes from the big banks, right? They love their terminology of change the bank and run the bank and, or BAU and change. Or This is the wrong way to think about it. The best way to think about change is how do you make yourself slightly better every couple of weeks? And, and that's how we think about it at Allocate. You know, the question I'll always ask of my product managers and my product owners is how have you actually moved things forward for the customers or customer support if you support them? How have you moved them forward in the last two weeks? You've got to kill these big transformation programs. They're the wrong way of doing it. There's an entire ecosystem of people whose entire living and very, very good living as well is based on convincing large financial institutions to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on transformation programs. You're not trying to land a person on the moon here. You don't need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on anything. Get started, find a high quality team and let them get on with their job. Yeah. And what's the niche for the likes of yourself, Alica Bank? What are the opportunities out there for you? Well, I talked earlier about the potential death of the universal banks. We are very focused on one segment, which the big banks actually really struggle with. We talk about them internally as established SMEs. These are, you know, when you're driving into a town and you accidentally go into an industrial park and there's these warehouses, in fact, they, those are our customers. They are really unloved by the big banks. And there's a reason for that. The big banks, they make all their money from very large corporates or millions of very small consumers. Our customers are quite awkward. They're kind of stuck in the middle. They're not as big as corporates, but they're not as simple as consumers. So we're laser focused on that segment and giving them, frankly, what we think is the banking services that they deserve. Yeah. So how do you make those SMEs feel more loved? Well, to some extent, we're giving them back something they used to have. I mean, our customers have typically been, been around quite a long time. And they actually remember when they had a relationship manager in their branch um, who actually understood their business and actually had some influence on whether the bank would lend to them, for example. Well, the branches are dying. The relationship managers are gone. Uh, for most of our customers. So what we're doing is using modern technology to bring back that kind of relationship banking that they so desperately miss. So what does that mean in practice? Well, for example, if we want to have a local relationship with a customer, we don't need an expensive branch to make that happen, yeah? That's a very expensive way of delivering a local relationship. What about if we can turn up at their premises or their favorite coffee shop and have a chat about their business, you know, using modern technology? So we're, we're trying to rethink a type of banking that businesses desperately want and was taken away from them. Is this an existential crisis for the big banks? It's an existential crisis for those that don't move quickly enough. And I think the good news is they've probably got an extra five years to play with. But let me just unpick that. We're now moving back to normal interest rates. There's a whole generation of fintechs that don't seem to understand that 3% interest rate is not scary. That's the norm. Download some data tapes from the Bank of England. You'll yeah. quickly find out. The last 10 years was exceptional, not the current time. Well, rising interest rates suit banks for very complex technical reasons I won't go into, but also there's a, there's a whole generation of fintechs that are predicated on this low interest rate environment, either in terms of having raised too much equity or lenders that don't understand how interest rates work. I think there's another five years to play with, but fundamentally, the big incumbents have got to start changing now, and they've got to stop doing what they used to be, what they've been doing for the last 10 years, which is putting a few people in a WeWork and saying, build some cool stuff. <laughs> Conrad Ford, that was brilliant. Thanks so much for your time today and stopping by. And that's all for this special episode of the C-Suite podcast from FinTech Connect here in London. Thanks to all my guests for taking the time to share their insights and to Free Market for partnering with us on the podcast and hosting us on their stand. If you've enjoyed these interviews and you'd like to contribute to the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. 
The links to all our social media channels and pages can be found at the top of the page at csuitepodcast.com, where you can also catch up with our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me, Graham Barrett, and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.